You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is Evan, your long-form podcast co-host. And we're doing something a little different all this week on the show in collaboration with the George Polk Awards. Each day this week, one of the hosts, myself, Max, or Aaron, will have an interview with one of the winners of the 2020 Polk Awards, representing the best and most influential journalism of last year. For this one, it was my great pleasure to talk to Helen Branswell, who is the senior writer at Stat News covering infectious disease and global health. She was absolutely essential reading over the course of the pandemic, truly from its earliest moments, which we talk about, and continues to be up until right now. In any given week in the past year and three months or so, if you wanted to know what scientists understood about the virus, what was going on with vaccine development, Helen's work had the answers. And I spoke to her recently about how she managed to cover this pandemic so relentlessly. So here's my conversation with Helen and tune in the rest of the week for more interviews with George Polk Award winners. Hi, Helen, and welcome to the Longform Podcast, and also congratulations on your 2020 Polk Award. Thanks, Evan. It's a real thrill. I'm very excited to talk to you. It's excited is maybe not the right word, because reading all of your work over the past year, it just, it takes me back through all of the ups and downs and all of the nightmares of the year. But I wanted to start with a tweet, or the tweet, uh, <laughs> you might say, which is you, December 31st, 2019 saying, hopefully this is nothing out of the ordinary, but a pro-med male posting about an unexplained pneumonias in China is giving me SARS flashbacks. And none of us out here in the world had, had heard about that at that time, or maybe we'd seen one news story. I want you to tell me a little bit about where you were at that time and, and take me back into the mindset and what else you were reporting on when that sort of popped up on your radar. Sure. So, um, I was in Canada. I'm, I am from Canada. And I was, you know, in Ottawa for Christmas with family. And although I was off, I was also 
crunching a long, a long form article, actually, that I was writing on the back history of the um, only licensed Ebola vaccine or the first licensed Ebola vaccine at that time. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, it was due in, I think it was due like the 31st of December or something like that. And I, uh, so I had been working on that. um, And I'd finished it, you know, the night before, and or finish the draft and um on new year's eve i you know was doing some things and looked at my phone in the afternoon and i saw an email from promed which is a a listserv uh, maintained by the international society for infectious diseases it's essentially an early warning system about disease outbreaks around the world and you know, I noticed pneumonias, I noticed China, and that's something that people pay attention to. China mm. knows how to diagnose pneumonia. It has lots of experience with new strange diseases and its, you know, its surveillance system for detecting outbreaks of new diseases is pretty good. So if China was seeing something unusual, it was something you needed to pay attention to. So I read that post and I tweeted that tweet. Um, but I can't, you know, like... A, Nobody should think that in that in that moment I knew that we were in the early stages of a pandemic. I didn't. I just knew it was something I had to pay attention to. And then it was a few days later that you you actually published your first story on Stat about it, which was uh, I think it was titled "Experts Search for Answers uh, About Mystery Pneumonia Outbreak." And how did it cross over into something where you said, "Okay, this is something I'm going to start." Uh, making calls. I'm going to start trying to figure out what's going on here. What what prompted that? Well, I started putting out feelers immediately, effectively. Um, you know, I I flew back to uh, Boston on New Year's Day to come back to work, and I would have probably had a story on up on January second, but for the fact that this long piece that I had written about the Ebola vaccine um, needed to go through editing. And that was a, you know, it was a 5,000 word piece. So it was a big project. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we were done with that, I uh, started putting together what I had learned so far. And that first piece ran on January 4th. And it's interesting in that piece, there are these, I think a couple of experts that kind of we all came to know people who maybe didn't even follow the science of infectious disease as sort of big names. And I'm interested in how you knew to call those people. So I wanted to I wanted to kind of go back a little bit. And I know that you have covered pandemics before and you've covered infectious disease for a long time. Can you tell me a little bit about how you started into reporting on infectious disease? You know, I've been a reporter for <laughs> quite a long time. And um, uh, the first half of my career was not in science or, or health. It was in um, general news. I was a political reporter. I was a foreign correspondent for a little while. I did a bunch of different things. And there was this sort of pivot point in my career where the job I had been doing was effectively up. It had been kind of a term and I needed to find something else to do. And um, the company I was working for wanted me to be a health reporter and I wasn't interested (laughs) 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 because in Canada, health reporting is often about the politics of how much funding the healthcare system gets. And Uh I was not interested in that at all, but you know, they kind of insisted and I realized it was probably the best option on the table at that point. So I started doing it and it was, um, Frightening as 
tell in the beginning because, you know, I didn't have any background and every day I left the office thinking, you know, have I got it right? Did I, you know, what have I gotten wrong today? It was, you know, very steep learning curve. Hmm. And then about, you know, three years into it, when I was just starting to feel comfortable, SARS-1 hit, you know, this new disease that uh, came out of China, also brought to the world's attention by ProMed, uh, by the way. And I was living in, in Toronto. And, you know, as fluke would have it, Toronto was really the only center outside of uh, Asia to have a real outbreak of SARS. And hmm. so I was just plunged into it. I I had no background covering infectious disease outbreaks. I didn't know an epi curve or uh, what an R naught was or any of these things. But you know, you you know, in that kind of a situation, you learn a lot really, really fast. And it was just fascinating. I mean, you know, initially it was a bit scary, but then when it became clear that the people who were getting infected were working in hospitals in the main or, you know, exposed to people who've been working in hospitals. Um, it wasn't so frightening. It was just like fascinating watching science unfold in real time. You know, at the beginning, they didn't know what the causative agent was. Uh, there was a lot of work to determine that. And then it, it was discovered very quickly. I will say this time around, the discovery that it was a coronavirus was, you know, instantaneous almost and much much mm -hmm. faster than SARS-1 um, but that's how I got into uh, infectious diseases reporting and then you know I started covering pandemic preparedness in a big way and did it for a lot of years. And did you have the feeling the experience I, I covered a little bit of, of sort of pandemic science in like the mid-aughts and you know there were these people sort of saying there's a much bigger one coming and it you know there was a talk of zoonotic diseases and the study of it and there was a lot of kind of in the scientific community or at least in the infectious disease community and understanding that this was always lurking out there and we kind of got lucky a couple of times did you have that feeling as someone who reported on it and did, was there a point in january of 2020 where you it kind of settled into you or february of 2020 that this was that well certainly i you know, in the mid-aughts, um, you know, the pandemic reporting was about H5N1. And it, it, that was a, you know, the prospect of that becoming a, a pandemic flu virus was quite frightening because uh, although it didn't infect people frequently, when it did, it mostly killed them. And um, of the probably eight or 900 people to date who've been known to have been infected with that virus, somewhere in the range of 60% of them died. So mm. that was, you know, thinking about that as a pandemic pathogen, you know, it really <laughs> got your attention because, I mean, that, that would have been so catastrophic. I mean, if you think about how disruptive this pandemic has been and it kills fewer than 1% of the people who are infected. So, but it certainly was a bit of a shock in 2009, you'll remember when we finally did have the first flu pandemic in about 40 years, it was um, not caused by a bird flu virus. It was caused by a swine flu virus, right. H1N1. And that was a really wimpy pandemic by pandemic standards. You know, after years of warning people that there might be this dire thing coming, what came, you know, it had an impact. It 
when you call it wimpy around flu people, they get mad because the people who died tended to be sort of in their late 30s, late 40s. So years of life lost, it was a significant event. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in terms of global deaths, I I think it was in the range of 200 or 250,000. I mean, the U.S. has had more COVID deaths than the whole world had flu deaths in 2009. Hmm. So, you know... There was this period after that where people, I think, sort of felt like, oh, this stuff has all been overblown. Um, That probably changed with the Ebola outbreak of 2014, 2016 in West Africa when people saw, you know, oh, yes, infectious diseases can cause really bad things. Um, I've always been pretty certain that infectious diseases can cause pretty bad things and be pretty disruptive. I mean, Mm -hmm. at least since SARS-1. So, you know, if what you're getting at is if, you know, did I have a penny drop moment in like January or February? I can't tell you that I did. Um, but, I, you know, nothing was reassuring. Yeah. From the moment I read the first ProMed posting on it, nothing was reassuring. Nothing made me think, oh, this might be not so bad. I mean, you know, China was taking extraordinary steps. You don't close down cities you don't force millions of people to sequester themselves in their homes if you have any other choice you don't build hospitals in a week i mean there wasn't enough information coming out of there but the information that was coming out was not at all reassuring Mm -hmm. and there was so much i mean there has been so much uncertainty scientific uncertainty especially in those first months, but even, I mean, continuing up till today, how did you grapple as a science writer with this mix of breaking news situation, absolute desperation for answers from people and who are turning to your work and this tremendous scientific uncertainty? That's not a place that I'm uncomfortable in. Mm. I, I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, I like caveats. I like stories that have lots of caveats in them. I know it's important not to overstate what's known in the face of something that's new. I think I learned that from the first SARS outbreak. So I didn't find that a particularly uncomfortable position to be in. I would say, though, that, you know, at the start of the pandemic, not so much January or even probably February, but when, you know, after Italy and when the whole world realized, yes, this thing is out of China and yes, it's going to do outside of China what it's doing in China. For a while there, it became almost impossible to get in touch with anybody. Hmm. Anybody who knew anything was so overwhelmed by interview requests or email to attend this or that meeting or whatever. Yeah. You, you, you could barely get through to people. It was just like trying to report in a hurricane or something. And did you have any strategies for getting through to experts <laughs> who are getting 50 emails a day? Uh, you know, text when you could, like, if you had the cell number, text. But I mean, people were, people were, all the wires were were jammed, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I I was lucky in that because I've been working in this sphere for a while, I had a fairly good. People remember what a Rolodex is. I had a Rolodex that was fairly uh, decent, so yeah, I could always find somebody to quote. But it was, 
it was a bit disconcerting for a while. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can imagine. Um, you did a few, you know, you did interviews along the way that were published as Q and A's, and this one that you did with the head of the CDC, um, Redfield, in April really stuck with me. Partly because there was this, there was this moment where you're asking about what the agency's doing, and he's sort of, you know, hemming and hawing a little bit, and then you just say, sort of point blank, your agency is invisible, and I'm interested in your mindset like I read a frustration into that statement but I'm interested in your mindset at that point when you're dealing with official sources of information that you as a science journalist as a journalist in general are expecting to be a certain way which uh, they're not yeah you were right to read frustration there I mean it was you know the CDC was built for stuff like this and to watch the agency be silenced last year and sidelined by an administration that deemed being truthful about the scale of the threat, an existential threat to the administration. I, I, you know, it was startling. It was unsettling. It was disheartening, to be honest. I mean, Mm. you know, it America needed the CDC to do the type of job the CDC should be doing. And they weren't, I mean, they were obviously working in the background, working with states, working on a lot of different things. I don't mean to suggest that they weren't um, active, but, um, you know, things didn't need to go the way they went. Mm-hmm. Well, by by my count, you've written something, I think, north of 180 coronavirus-related stories since the first cases appeared. I'm not sure my count is entirely accurate, but somewhere around there uh, in the past year and and some months. How did you maintain your stamina to do that? I'm, I'm intrigued by that number. I, I was also intrigued when the Poke people said I'd written 161, and they said they counted. I, I That kind of startles me. I, <laughs> I, I don't really feel like I'm that productive, but, um, but it might be things that I contributed to or, or um, co-wrote because there are a bunch of those. Yeah, there's some co-authored ones. And, yeah, and yeah. I mean, the amazing thing to me was I was just going through, you know, there were 18 per page on the stat page and I was just yeah. sort of paging through. Yeah. But also what amazed me was that tucked in there, there would be a little story about Ebola and a little like that you were actually like picking up other topics <laughs> Sometimes during this whole thing, <laughs> I, I at some point I should count how many non-COVID stories I wrote last year because I think it's fewer than five. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually desperate to write about some things that are not COVID, <laughs> but uh, I can't get my editors to let me do that just yet. How do I do it for stamina? Well, you know, it's the biggest story in the world, and it's the biggest story I'm ever going to work on, and. What else is going on in life? I mean, it's not like I life pretty much now is is work and then trying to come down from work and occasionally trying to move enough not to sort of seize up entirely. Um, there have been moments like last March, I had a few days where it was really just hard to pull myself out of bed because it felt like what was coming at us was so big and could be so bad. Mm. And I was like, Oh, but you know, you do what you can do. And the next day you do a little more and, um, you know, you find ways to the new normal becomes normal ish. It's what 
needed to be done now. You know, yeah. I, I, Do, is there any way in which, I mean, we all had and have fear about this pandemic and fear about ourselves and our, our loved ones and the economy and everything that's happened. Does writing about it and reporting on it help in any way with your personal response to the pandemic? Or does it just immerse you in it, that fear more than it would anyone else? Does it give you any sense of, I don't know, like control over some aspect of it? Oh, I, I think it definitely helps. I mean, having information is, I mean, I don't watch scary movies because I don't find that entertaining. But, you know, the few ones I've watched, the ones that are the scariest are when you don't know what's coming at you, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the, the threat is unknown. The more information you have, the more you can process what you're dealing with, I think. And so I have found it hugely helpful to be researching stories and writing stories and learning about things. Uh, it really helps me put things in context. Um, you know, this has been a very tough event, but it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. And I've understood that for about a year. Well, not year, last March was bad, but it, it became you know, clearish, maybe last April or so that the fatality rate, for instance, wasn't um, the infection fatality rate anyway, wasn't uh, one or 2% or 3% as some people have been talking about, which would have been ghastly, like just completely ghastly. It has been a tough time. And it's certainly been, you know, hugely difficult for people with young children who've been out of school, or older adults who haven't seen their family for a really long time. I mean, that there are a lot of people who've had a terrible, terrible time during this pandemic. But I feel like, you know, the position I've been in, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm one of the fortunate ones, frankly, you know, mm -hmm. if there are people who are fortunate through this. Okay, last question. Have you had any chance to kind of reflect on the path that put you into this moment? I mean, the sort of becoming a health reporter, maybe a little bit against your will, the SARS epidemic turning up where you were, and then you arrived here with the experience in this moment where the biggest pandemic that we've experienced in our lifetimes happened. Have you paused to reflect at all on sort of like how all that came to be for you? Uh, not really. I haven't <laughs> had a ton of time. But when you put it that way, it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, yeah, you know, look, a guy I used to work with, you know, in my last job at the Canadian Press, he used to occasionally walk by me and say, Helen, what am I going to die from today? And, you know, I was sort of widely seen as this person who saw doom everywhere and, you know, was was worrying about the threats that nobody else thought were real. Uh, you know, I to be completely truthful, I wasn't spending every minute, you know, sort of worrying about pandemics. But I have found at several points in my career that things that I didn't know were going to be helpful later became very helpful that, you know, by fluke, not by design, built, you know, a background that turned out to be really useful. And I'm just lucky. I don't think it, it could well have happened that I would have spent all that time writing about pandemic preparedness and what a pandemic could do and how 
vaccines could be made in a hurry and stuff and never have gotten the chance to use it. And frankly, I would have been very happy to have retired <laughs> without having used the, that information. But having acquired it, it was useful. Well, I, I would rather have lived in that world also. But given that we live in this one, I very much appreciate that we had you to help us understand it. So Helen, I hope you get to write about something other than the coronavirus for all of our sakes in the coming year. But thank you very much for, for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. That's it for this episode of the Longform Podcast. My thanks to Helen Branswell. You can find her reporting at statnews.com. Tune in every day this week for more interviews with Polk Award winners from my co-hosts Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. And hot tip, there are also some 2020 Polk Award winners who we have interviewed in the past, including the likes of Ed Young, Katie Englehart, Eli Saslow, Luke Mogelson. All of them also won 2020 Polk Awards, so dip into the archives for those. This series is edited by Courtney Harrell. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you to the Polk Awards for collaborating with us on this, and thank you for listening. We will see you next time. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.